I'll grab that clicker. Oh, sorry. That's right. Cool. Thanks, Timmy. Sorry that you've had a, uh, a rough week, but um, hopefully this morning will be encouraging for you. So, as Timmy said, we are clicking on a teaching series at the moment called The Heart of Christmas. And uh, you'll probably see, you'll probably be well aware that Christmas is supposed to be a season of joy, right? Some of you are feeling joyful. That's good. Two people. Um, I can understand why, though. I can understand why, because Christmas is not only just a season of joy, but it's also the season of work functions, school breakups, you know, late night shopping, excess food, probably, relatives, in-laws, all those sorts of things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's not particularly joyful. <laughs> sometimes that's more stressful, uh, all that sort of stuff. And then overlaid on top of that, you know, the year that we've had, all the kind of rising costs and the pandemic and all those sorts of things, it can be a pretty, pretty intense season of the year, right? So, I am here to help. I am going to help you this morning. I'm going to get some endorphins flooding into your brain because I'm going to help you think about things that are joyful, that will hopefully bring you joy. Are you okay with this? That's good because I don't have a plan B here, so we're going to have to crack on with it. So basically I'm just going to list, I'm going to put some pictures up on the screen, uh, a list of things which might bring you joy, and if that thing on the screen brings you joy, you are welcome to cheer, or shout, or yell loudly, or something that just kind of shows some sort of expression that you are joyful in that thing. Got it? Okay. All right. First up, good coffee. Yeah. <laughs> As a few, I knew. Okay, we'll keep with the theme. Chocolate. Yeah, I thought there would have been more. I mean, I don't know if that's a look of joy or of horror that he's been caught. But um, anyway, I know that there will be a few faces like that in a few days' time. What about uh, keeping with the food theme? Christmas dinner. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, that's good. Um, some of you probably not so keen on that, but maybe you're saving yourself for the Christmas dessert. Yeah. So Christmas pavlova, that's uh, a big one. What about Christmas pudding? Uh, yeah. I think that's a, a generational thing, but I'm not brave enough to say the cutoff. Uh, speaking of pudding, um, black pudding? Yeah, I didn't think so. I just wondered if it was like a, in the pudding zone, but okay, this may, may be applicable for you. Does this bring you joy? Lego. <laughs> Come on. <Of> the, <laughs> the people who have to clean it up, the people who stand on it and bare feet, it doesn't bring much joy to those people. What about an e-bike? That would bring you joy. <clears throat> Maybe that's not fast enough for you. What about... A supercar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, I, I mean, I, I think some of you are, are quite mature people. Um, and, and you know that whilst you look at those things, the coffee, the chocolate, the cars, etc., you also, you're not sucked in by the consumerism of Christmas. I mean, you know that after a while, as cool as that car is, or as delicious as that chocolate is, the joy is probably going to fade. And you know that real joy is deeper than things, right? That's why 
I'm going to share some experiences with you. So what if, what if experiences were actually a bit more um, joyful than things? So again, cheer loudly if these things would bring you joy. A luxury cruise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm not giving away free luxury cruises. <laughs> I sense some desperation, but uh, okay. Maybe the cruise, not so much, but definitely a holiday in a tropical island. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, okay, all right, that would be. What about a hot lap in a supercar? Bring you joy? Now, you may be able to tell on this lady's face. Um, well, as, so this photo is taken from a 3 minute 22 second video, and this lady gets in the car, she gives the driver a thumbs up, and then she screams her head off for the whole ride, and then when the driver gives her the thumbs up, she gives him the thumbs up, and then she keeps screaming, so... <laughs> it's a, an interesting expression of joy, but nevertheless... Okay, maybe that's not your thing, maybe you just want to like tone it down. What about a Broadway show, like a proper Broadway show? Bring you joy? Yeah? What about dining at a Michelin star restaurant? No. I suppose, I suppose you pay a ridiculous amount of money for those meals, and you turn up and, and you ask if this is the main course. <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty, but anyway. What about something a little bit more grander scale, going to a, a World Cup final? Yes. Yeah, all right. Or what about uh, a concert with your favourite band? Yes. Yeah, that's good, good, good. I'd, I'd be happy with that one. What about something, something simple? Would a, a spectacular sunset bring you joy? What about a, a family reunion? Where everybody gets on? And it only lasts for two hours. What about falling in love and getting married? <laughs> Someone said, I've done that. As it's an ongoing thing, of course. What about witnessing the birth of your child? Yes, you've done that as well. Yes, I know. Some of those experiences might have been uh, on your bucket list. Maybe you've achieved them. Maybe you're still to achieve them. But chances are some of those experiences are going to bring, bring a joy which is much deeper and broader than things. But even with all of that, I'm guessing that the feeling of joy that we may get from some of those experiences will probably still fade over time. And I think if we're truly, truly honest, if we, if we stop and be still for a moment, every person knows that we were made for more. Joy uh, that we get from things or even experiences is fleeting and it, and it fades away and there is often an ache, an emptiness left behind that, that cannot be filled. And if you have felt that, you are not alone. Some of the greatest thinkers of history have felt the ache for something more. 3,000 years ago, one of the ancient uh, philosophers, a man simply known as the teacher, he reflected on his search for satisfaction in life, and this is what he wrote. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. 
In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. Though I have searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. You know, 3,000 years later, Bono, the lead singer from U2, echoes that unsatisfaction when he sings, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And some of the great writers, the great thinkers, the great artists, they have expressed our deep longings, the deep longings of the human heart that we, to, to, be, to know something that was more truly satisfying than what we could ever experience on this earthly life. In fact, it seems like the best life is always just slightly out of our reach. One of the writers who knew um, the unsatisfactory nature of life was a man called C.S. Lewis. He was an Irish-born author, scholar, and, and one of the most prolific authors of the 20th century. So he's most famous for his fictional series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you might have read those, maybe as a kid or, or as a teenager or as an adult. Those Chronicles of Narnia books have sold over 100 million copies. They've been translated into 46 languages. They've been adapted into films and plays and and all sorts of stuff. But C.S. Lewis also wrote a whole bunch of other things. He wrote over 40 books, countless essays, reviews, articles, and even poems. And his vast literary output was actually no surprise. Education was highly valued in the Lewis household in which he grew up. But he was also a bit of a child prodigy. By the time he was three years old, he was reading. And by the time he was five years old, he was writing stories about a fantasy land which he'd created with talking animals. And even though that idyllic childhood um, sounded pretty great, it was, it was turned upside down. When he was 10 years old, C.S. Lewis's mother tragically died of cancer. And as he struggled to grieve the loss of his mother, his his father packed him up and sent him off to boarding school in England. This might be a surprise, but Lewis actually really struggled at school. His teachers were absent and abusive. His classmates were arrogant and, and aggressive. In fact, he hated his schooling years so much that in his autobiography, the chapter about his school years, he titles it Concentration Camp. <laughs> That's how he viewed his schooling. But he managed to survive, he left school, and in 1917 he was shipped to the trenches of World War I. For five months he witnessed the horror of that war. He was wounded in a battle in France, he returned to England, enrolled in Oxford University, and studied classical history and philosophy. And apparently he was an excellent student, such a good student that at the end of his studies he was offered a teaching position. And so for the next 38 years, first at Oxford and then at Cambridge University, he was a professor. But throughout his academic career, C.S. Lewis had an intellectual dilemma. So he had been brought up with the traditional Christian upbringing in the Church of Ireland, But as a teenager, he gave up on God. The early death of his mother, the brutality of his schooling, and the futility of war convinced him that a loving God could not exist. 
But in his studies at university, particularly the ancient myths and the legend that he, legends that he explored, they made him believe that there was more to this world than meets the eye. That even with his struggle to believe in a loving God, he felt a longing for something deeper than the human experience. And so during his 20s and his 30s, he really wrestled with this tension. And actually through a series of small but quite significant steps, this self-described atheist moved closer to a belief in God. To the point where in 1929, uh, he accepted the possibility that a loving God could exist. In his words, he was a reluctant convert. This is what he writes. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And you know, out of everybody, Lewis himself was most astonished by his faith journey. And his intellectual curiosity had convinced him that there must be more. He was desperate to discover the meaning of life, to, to find out if there was purpose beyond the drudgery of everyday existence. And so he explained this as a lifelong search for joy. He recognized that somehow, despite the desperate suffering and sadness in the world, people could still experience joy. But he had a really unique understanding of joy. He defined it as an unsatisfied desire. Now you think about that for a minute. That's pretty different to how we typically define joy, right? Now, usually we think joy is us getting what we want. Maybe it's the food or the money or the car or the holiday or the adventure or the partner or whatever. Like We will find joy when we get what we want. But Lewis says, no. Joy is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Joy must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed only one characteristic in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. In other words, for C.S. Lewis, joy was a longing for more. It was a glimpse. It was, it was a snapshot, a taste of what could be. And so he explains this further in, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity. It's quite a big quote, but I'm going to share it with you. This is what he writes. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they acutely want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and teaching may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. So he goes on to say that there are two wrong ways of dealing with this longing and one right way. The first wrong way is the fool. The fool puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on his, all his life thinking that if only he had tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday or whatever it is, then this time he would really catch the mysterious something we are all after. 
Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the, in the world are of this type. The second wrong way, the disillusioned. The disillusioned soon decides that the whole thing was nonsense. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much. This, of course, makes a man less of a nuisance to society. This would be the best line we could take if a man did not live forever, but supposing infinite happiness really is there, waiting for us, supposing one really can reach the rainbow's end. In that case, it would be a pity to find out too late, a moment after death, that by our supposed common sense we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of enjoying it. But there is a third way. The Christian, the Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see, for C.S. Lewis, joy that we experience now is really just a foretaste of the future. That sunrise, that adventure, that good food, that friendship, that love, that is just a hint of a deeper joy which awaits And so for Lewis, our experiences here on earth were just a shadow of the true reality of what we're created for. Life on this planet can be pretty good at times, but God has planned so much better for us beyond this earthly experience. This is how he put it in another uh, another book. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child Who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea? We are far too easily pleased. I don't know about you, but maybe you think, yeah, real joy could be possible. I mean, you know that life is tough, but maybe there's a possibility that it it could be there. But then at times it kind of sounds like wishful thinking, you know, this, this thing which C.S. Lewis is talking about. Perhaps he's a little bit too academic, like he's kind of got his head in the clouds. He's out of touch with the real challenges that everyday people face. Well, I can promise you that Lewis lived in the real world. He knew the highs and the lows of the human condition. For, for most of his working life, he was a bachelor. But when he was 58 years old, he married a Christian woman called Joy Gresham. Six months into their marriage, she was diagnosed with advanced cancer. And after a lot of prayer, miraculously, that cancer went into remission, but three years later it returned and she passed away. And so Lewis was understandably heartbroken. He poured out his sorrow and his sadness into his writings. But in the midst of his grief, as he mourned the loss of his wife, he was able to find joy. This is what he wrote. Praise is the mode of love, which always has some element of joy in it. 
praise in due order of him, God, as the giver, of her as the gift. Don't we praise some don't we in praise somehow enjoy what we praise, however far we are from it? But by praising I can still in some degree enjoy her and already in some degree enjoy him. Better than nothing. You know, how could a man who have who had lost his wife wrote write of knowing joy? I guess maybe because despite his heavy heart, Lewis trusted that the joy that he had known for a short time with his wife was really just a foretaste of what was on offer for eternity. And Lewis knew that to be true because he knew Jesus. After years of sifting through the evidence, Lewis believed that the historical figure of Jesus Christ was actually the Son of God and that 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of eternity and he entered humanity. And we remember that defining event at Christmas. It's easy, though, for the core of the Christmas message to get lost in all that commercialization and, and consumerism that we see. But Christmas is really about the coming of Jesus. And it's significant not only because God came to us, but because in that first Christmas, the world saw what real joy looked like. For centuries before, people had been longing for more. Those ancient poets, those prophets, those philosophers, they'd been holding on to hope. They had an ache, an unsatisfied desire for something more. They were looking for something greater, something bigger, something beyond our earthly experience. And then in the greatest plot twist, the joy of heaven came to earth. Remember what those angels announced at that first Christmas to the shepherds. The angels said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem. And you will recognize him by the sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. You know, in other words, real joy is here. That ache, that longing, that dissatisfaction that we have will be fulfilled. Real joy has entered the world and he is wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. And as he began his adult ministry, Jesus made it pretty clear that he had come to bring joy. And teaching his followers what it looked like to live a life connected with God, he said this, I have told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And so Jesus opened the way for real joy to flow into people's lives. He, he healed the sick. He lifted the lowly. He forgave sinners. He showed mercy to the repentant. He loved the lonely. In powerful and personal ways, Jesus brought joy. And then after his life and his death and his resurrection, those, those first Christian communities were known by their joy. Which is crazy because many of them suffered. Many of them experienced hardships and persecution, but in the midst of that tough stuff, those Christians held to a deep sense of joy. Peter was one of them. He encouraged Christians facing some challenges in the area which we now know as modern-day Turkey. He said, because of Jesus, you can be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. 
And I don't know about you, but I think that is a really good example for us to live by. Because Christmas can be a pretty tough season, right? There's the stress and the rush of the events that we've got to get to. Sometimes there's sorrow and loss as we remember loved ones. Maybe there's sadness of broken relationships. And in those times, the joy of Christmas just kind of fades and gets pushed to the margins. But look to the first Christmas. See that real joy was offered to the world. Jesus is the joy bringer. And that unsatisfied desire that we carry deep within, that longing for more, that ache to be better, that is never going to be fulfilled by the things or the experiences that we have. Jesus is the one who can fulfill that, who can satisfy our soul, who can fill us with real joy. Joy is the heart of Christmas because joy is at the heart of God. And the good news in that is that you don't have to wait for the life beyond, right? Jesus brings real joy to us. So this Christmas, and the hustle and bustle, and the shopping, the gift giving, the food, the families, the holidays, may you know pleasure beyond the things that you may get. And may you discover happiness beyond the experiences that you will have. May you know real joy, true joy, deep joy, as you discover that they're found not in things, not in experiences, but in a person. That's what C.S. Lewis discovered. He found that real joy was in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that meant that Lewis could enjoy the tough times and uh, enjoy the good times through the power and the presence of Jesus. You know what? That promise is also open to you this Christmas season. You have the opportunity to experience the joy of Jesus, to let his joy overflow in your life. All you've got to do is ask. Let's pray. God, we ask in the hustle and bustle of this season that we would remember the heart of Christmas. That first Christmas, Jesus, the joy bringer, he offers real joy which fulfills those deep longings in our soul. And so we just humbly ask that his joy would fill our lives. And in the places we go and the people we meet, we would reflect the joy of Jesus this Christmas. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Linda.